Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with Tomas Poyo, Silicon Valley startup entrepreneur, engineer, and writer whose recent in-depth articles in the online publication Medium have garnered worldwide attention, more than 60 million views, and he's applying his engineering and data analytics acumen, combining disparate information about COVID-19 to pull it all together for a published guide on how nations, governments, health systems, and individuals should be responding to this pandemic. Lori Robertson checks in, managing editor of factcheck.org, always separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can hear us by asking Alexa to play the program Conversations on Healthcare. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Tomas Poyo here on Conversations on Healthcare. We're speaking today with Tomas Cuello, Vice President for Growth at Course Hero, an online reference source for students, an engineer and entrepreneur with an MBA from Stanford. He's played a significant role in a number of other Silicon Valley startups, including Zynga and the online investment platform Sigfig. He's recently gained worldwide attention for his in-depth analysis of the global health data around COVID-19. Tomas is a published author and a public speaker on the neuroscience of storytelling, and he's recently become a very important thought influencer on coronavirus with a series of well-received articles published in the online site Medium. Tomas, mm-hmm. welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tomas, an uh, engineer, data analyst, and a self-described storyteller. You saw a lot of uh, disparate information emerging around uh, COVID-19 and Uh, And you took really a deep dive into the global data around COVID-19, including each country's different approach. And you wrote the first piece, uh, I think, early in March, Coronavirus, Why You Must Act Now. And much of what you predicted and laid out has happened. And I'm wondering what actions should have been taken in those early days of the pandemic and so necessary for us to get ahead of the pandemic. Yeah, since so much time has passed, I think it's it's important to go back to the mindset that the world had at the, uh, around that time. So March 10th, China was already close to being out. The cases, daily cases in Hubei had been going down substantially. And at that point, it was South Korea, Iran, and Italy that were exploding. The, each one of them had uh, thousands of cases, and all, nearly all other countries just had a few dozen. And what people thought was, well, you know, I only have a few dozen cases. This doesn't matter. And so, so that was the mindset of most people. If you see something happening in China and then the exact same thing happens in three other countries a few weeks later and you see the same beginning in every country, then you can just predict what's going to happen very easily. And so I think on, on March 10th, Italy had already locked down. So it's not like it was only a Chinese thing. And you could see all these other countries going through the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. It took uh, Spain and France, for example, one more, nearly one more week to to take uh, to make decisions. It took uh, the UK, I think, two or three more weeks to do that. Yeah. Um, and then in case of the US, it's just at the state level. It never happened at the federal level. Right. And so I think that's where the the mistake happens. And the, you, the history repeats itself. Mm-hmm. And assuming that it's not going to happen to you is a mistake. So Tomas, we are watching the predictions that you made play out 
in real time in our nation's hospitals in particular and in our cities and increasingly rural areas which are being overwhelmed. Your follow-up article, The Hammer and the Dance, explores what has to be done now that we are living in the midst of a pandemic. The hammer, the strict shutdown of schools, businesses, most of society, has bought us time. Still, 50,000 people are dead, millions are sick. Talk with us about why this hammer phase is a harsh, but a really necessary approach right now. So you see a country like South Korea, like they had an outbreak, but they knew exactly what they needed to do because they had something similar happen to them five years ago with MERS. Right. They had the right laws, they had the right public education, and so they didn't even need countrywide lockdowns. They just did what they knew what to do, and the result was very positive. Most of the countries did not have this experience. And so most of the countries were completely overwhelmed. Their um, healthcare system completely overwhelmed. It meant also that they didn't know exactly what to do to control this. That's what the hammer is. It's realizing that you have a massive outbreak, you need to stop it. That buys you time to understand the virus, to understand how to handle it, and to take all the measures to control it. Controlling the epidemic and understanding what to do to prepare for the dance are the reason why you need to be very aggressive for a few weeks early on with a hammer to buy yourself time. Tomas, a lot of people are really eager to reopen the economy, which you refer to, I think, as the dance part of the equation. And we haven't even hit peak outbreak in many parts of the country, and yet people are marching in the streets. You say there's some clear strategies that would help facilitate opening things up again, but that we have to be patient if we're to do this without initiating another wave of outbreaks. And I'm wondering, based on your data analytics of countries that have done it right, what must we do here in the United States, especially without a viable treatment or vaccine how do we continue to sort of minimize the risk to human life uh, while preserving the economy as well? Yeah, there are some people in, in some places going on the street and many, many more staying home. And obviously you don't see them because they're staying home. Tens or hundreds of millions of people who are staying home are the very vast majority. It makes sense that people are angry because this is very hard. Mm-hmm. So many millions of people have lost, lost their jobs. Some uh, businesses are going to be have to close. And in many cases, Unfortunately, it was also an avoidable situation if we had taken the right measures at the right time. So it, is, it makes sense that people are, are, are angry, but it's also true that most people understand what to do. So what do we do to move forward as fast as possible? And the, the issue with the measures that you're mentioning that some um, states want to relax is that you haven't changed anything. So I, I am a bit concerned about some of these measure relaxations that, that happen in, in different places. And to your point now, what can we do instead? So the hammer is this very brunt force that you apply. A scalpel enables you to be much more precise on exactly what you need to do. Um, it is a combination of testing, contact tracing, isolations, and quarantines. First, you need to test everybody. Because if you don't uh, test, you don't know who is infected. And if you don't know who is infected, you cannot isolate them to prevent them from being infectious. And then you also want to uh, see all the contacts that they've had over the last couple of weeks so that you can isolate them. You test them to see if they're positive, they're positive they, you isolate them. And if not, you ask them to stay home for a couple of weeks so that they, they, they can't transmit the virus to anybody else. If you do this, you can isolate only a few people and enable everybody else to go back to work. But those are not easy things to do. 
we, we all know that our testing is not at the right mm -hmm. level. We know mm -hmm. that our contact tracing is basically non-existent. Mm -hmm. So we need to set up these things. The question is not, we've already been in lockdown, are we ready yet? But rather, what measures are we taking and when are these measures going to be ready for us to dance? I mentioned four, there's a few more. For example, everybody should be wearing masks, even homemade masks make a huge difference. It is a no-brainer, just everybody should be doing this. And then there's the obvious things of hygiene, physical distance, and public education. All of these things are pretty cheap to do, and we should be doing them all. I want to talk about uh, the group of people that are just paying such an incredibly high price, and that's our frontline healthcare workers. They're in our hospitals, they're in our clinics. And because we didn't flatten the curve early on, weren't as prepared as we should have been, we have a system that's overwhelmed and people just don't have the basics of what they need to fully protect themselves. We you know, hear about governors bidding against each other to get the essential protective equipment that they need. And what's the best way to go forward based on your analysis to make sure that across the country, our health systems are supported and healthcare workers have what they need to be protected while they carry out their life-saving work? Uh, thankfully, we're in a place where these people selflessly go and fight these day in, day out, which, by the way, I think is heroic, but also puts in stark contrast with the sacrifices that we ask everybody else to do and, right. and some are not willing to make. Right. Um, they, are, they are dying for all of us. And, and the, the obvious ones are personal protective equipment. You want them to have their masks and their screens for the face and their gowns, and we just don't have that enough of that still. So that's crazy. So that's the, the first thing that we need to, to keep doing. Uh, a lot of the production of these things was happening in China. They are price gouging now. So there is homegrown uh, desire to build these things, but then nobody's controlling and coordinating it. And so I know a bunch of uh, manufacturing plants that say, I can recycle into, into building masks, but I don't know the designs that I should be using. And I know there's demand, but nobody's contacted me. So mm -hmm. how do I do it? So I think that's one of the key roles is the, the, the one of coordination that the federal level should have had, but unfortunately it hasn't happened. I think obviously ventilators, everybody talks about them, ICU beds. Another one of the keys that we will need over the next few weeks is understanding better the virus and the illness and how they work, because we know that a big chunk of the issue is due to the, is due to the virus, but another issue is due to the immune response to the virus. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, uh, and for example, ventilators might not be helping for the right. immune, immune, immune response. And understanding right. the details there, first, obviously, to do the proper treatments, but also then to understand what are the assets that we need to deliver those proper treatments. Mm -hmm. We're speaking today with uh, Tomas Pueyo, uh, engineer, data analyst, entrepreneur, author, and writer who's collections of articles on COVID-19 published in the uh, online uh, site medium have been widely acclaimed. Tens of millions of people have viewed them. Uh, Tomas, uh, one of the articles uh, in your coronavirus series really caught my attention in the piece, Out of Many, One. And you do an in-depth analysis of why a cohesive public health approach is so much more effective than this piecemeal approaches we're seeing right now. And for example, we've all read where Georgia, Florida are reopening. In that piece, I think you do a great job of laying out some very specific reasons why a unified strategy across the country will not only save lives, but uh, serve the economy as well. I'm wondering if you could illuminate more of your thinking on that. Yeah. 
the places that are impacted first are always going to be the ones that are most connected to the world because they are the ones importing the cases. Mm -hmm. And then the ones that have the more density because then the transmission rate is going to be higher. Um, that uh, because in this country, um, urban areas uh, tend to be more uh, Democrat and rural areas tend to vote more uh, Republican, that meant that democ democratic areas were impacted first. And then it might be perceived as a, a, a more of a party line kind of issue. But the problem is when you look at historically how these kinds of illnesses spread, then they end up spreading everywhere. Early on, it was perceived as a um, um, partisan issue because of this uh, reason, but it wasn't. The, the reason why you need to coordinate, you don't want different states to be bidding against each other for these kinds of assets. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, you want to allocate these assets to the right places and you want one single buyer so that they have the, all the force of, of their purchasing power. The other one is, is obviously knowledge, right? Because you have the CDC at the federal level. You don't have CDCs at the state level. So the, the epidemiological experience and the ability to research everything that needs to be done, it makes sense to centralize that. Mm -hmm. um, whenever you have an impact at the economy level, you will have some parts of the economy that are worse hit than others. Mm -hmm. and, and you want as high a level as possible to go and spread the pain. For example, Florida's economy relies very heavily on tourism. Tourism is very affected by the coronavirus. If Florida has to make a decision between uh, health and economy, and their economic uh, impact is going to be so much higher than another state, mm -hmm. they will have a different conclusion. And that is probably the right conclusion for Florida, which might not be the right conclusion for the rest of the country. And that is why you need a higher level coordination. Mm -hmm. uh, federal government saying, you know, Florida, for the good of all the states, you need to shut down, but you are going to incur more costs, so we need to compensate you for that. Mm -hmm. Well, Tomas, in, in the coming months, we will, as a nation, I hope, uh, be on the downside of the COVID-19 outbreak curve, but we are clearly going to be left with an enormous hit to the economy, to our healthcare system, to our maybe to our just national mm -hmm. sense of, of well-being. Uh, and you've talked about we need to get back to a new normal and learning a new way to dance. And uh, as a dance aficionado, I really appreciate your quote from Martha Graham that dance is discovery, discovery, discovery. We're going to have to discover a lot of new dance steps. But what are they? And how do you envision this rebuilding of the country after the worst of this is behind us? So what do these projections look like in terms of getting back to this new normal and how people learn the steps to get there? So there's a very short term, there's a medium term, and there's a long term. And short term is the next few weeks. Then it is the medium term is the dense period. And then the long term is once we're out of this. And each one of them has their own challenges. Right now, the short term, the challenge is figuring out which measures we're going to bet on. I mentioned a few of them uh, very quickly, summarizing testing, contact tracing, isolations, quarantines, masks, public hygiene, uh, public education, uh, and physical distancing. There's also probably a couple more that we need. One of them is some travel restrictions, and the other one is limits on social gathering side. Mm. If, if you do an amazing job locally, but then you import cases from, uh, from abroad, then you have a problem. And this is exactly what happened in Singapore. They're doing a great, great job locally and then import cases from, from workers, and then they had an outbreak. Another thing that we might need to do is also limits on social gatherings, because if you have, for example, a very big fair, 
that lasts three, four days with 5,000 people, the likelihood that one of these people or a few of these people come and infect all these other networks that are available in that place is very high. And so then you can have a, a huge super spreader event like this, like the one that happened in South Korea, where mm -hmm. just a woman right. that went to a church for twice right. created 5,000 cases. That's the medium term. Like how do we live with these measures? And the new normal might be, now you have a mask on you all the time. Now, if you're in a meeting, you should not have 10 people in a small room, but maybe it's uh, two or three people and you're sitting in a way that you don't face each other. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of these small things in your day-to-day -day mm -hmm. that are going to change. Mm -hmm. And then there's a question of after that, right? After, after there's a vaccine, after there, there are treatments, uh, how, how we can tackle this. And I think there's a lot of questions that you will, we will need to ask. Many of the systems in the United States uh, were not well equipped to respond to these crises. But um, the government is just a tool and it's just a tool for coordination. And so if you face a situation like this one where you need coordination, you need government in this case to, to provide a solution. The, the fact that my wife, for example, was in isolation because three weeks ago, she, uh, she might have had the coronavirus hmm. um, and she turned out to be negative, but it cost us over $2,000. Like if it's going to cost us through the current healthcare system $2,000 per person to be tested for the coronavirus, nobody's going to get tested. And if nobody gets tested, we can control the epidemic. So you need an intervention at the healthcare level to prevent these type of epidemics from happening again. And so this is the type of conversations we're going to have for the long term. You know, we were fortunate to have Dr. Fauci on our uh, radio show, I think early in March. I think there were only what, whatever it was, 15 cases were mm -hmm. out there. And right. uh but he, he has talked uh, since then about this second wave of COVID-19 uh, outbreaks uh, once the society uh, opens up again. I, so we're still learning uh, more about the capacity of the virus to spread. Your latest installment uh, in this really great lexicon of work that you are doing uh, entitled The Basic uh, Dance Steps Everyone Can Follow, you really sort of lay out for the public the, the role, the important role they can do. And it's just really the fundamentals of blocking and tackling, if you will, of wearing masks, hand hygiene, simple behaviors. So really, I think we have to sort of retrain our mind about how we, how we do a dance with somebody, right? Maybe a little more distant dance. Tell us how that public plays uh, perhaps the most vital role. Yeah. My interpretation of it is based on what he understands and what's happening in the U.S., it is likely that mm -hmm. we will be suffering another one. Many other countries will probably not. So it really depends on us. And we've seen that uh, governments in different levels uh, are taking the right decisions, but not all. And so citizens have a role to play. Businesses have a role to play. And so uh, blocking and tackling, I think, is important to understand the science that we know today of the virus. What we thought a few weeks ago is that it was just transmitted through droplets. You speak, or like you cough, rather, and you emit a few droplets that fall on the ground within six feet, and so you're good as long as you're not coughed in the face. And we've learned since that that's not the case. Right. It's not only the coughs, but it might be you speaking, it might be you just singing, right? like a choir in Washington State, 60 people, 45 got sick. The, in the church, the mega church in, in South Korea, these people are singing a lot too. And we also know now that uh, you can emit when you cough, cough for example, a, a cloud of droplets that stays in the air for longer and goes farther away from a couple of meters. 
uh, one of a fascinating uh, study in the Chinese city of Guangzhou, three families sitting in three different tables at a restaurant right. and just one person in one of the tables ended up spreading the virus to seven or eight people in three different tables. And so uh, that tells you some of the patterns of the spread. It happens exceptionally when there's a lot of talking, singing, contact close to each other in confined environments for a long period of time. This is what you need to avoid. And the things that don't look like they are infecting too much are, for example, walking outside. Mm -hmm. So once you understand that, you start understanding some of the things that you can do to prevent these from happening. For example, why are masks so important? Because half of the transmissions are pre-symptomatic, which means that people don't have symptoms yet, but they're sick, and they're already transmitting the virus. If you have a mask, all these droplets are gonna stay in the mask. Everybody should be wearing these masks. Mm -hmm. First, because it prevents others from being infected, mm -hmm. but also obviously because it, it protects you from being infected too. But it's, mm -hmm. you shouldn't be sitting in a meeting, five people in the same room talking for an hour, because that's a recipe for disaster. Right. So now you, you start understanding what are some of these measures that you can take. We've been speaking today with Tomas Pueyo, engineer, startup entrepreneur, author of a series of powerful articles on the coronavirus, published in the online site Medium, you can find them and we encourage you to read them through his pages on Facebook, LinkedIn, and on Twitter at Tomas Pueyo. And please also follow his work on Medium. Tomas, we wanna thank you for sharing your really remarkable skill for clear communication and taking complex data, turning it into digestible stories, and giving us a guidebook for navigating this pandemic, what we need to do, what we need to avoid doing. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I think what you're doing is, is extremely important. Uh, spreading this message is the single most important thing and the most impactful thing that we can do for the health and the economy of this country. So thank you very much. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Online posts have claimed to reveal various cures for the novel coronavirus. Some are benign, like eating boiled garlic, while others are potentially dangerous, like drinking chlorine dioxide in industrial bleach. Neither will cure the virus. One rumor claims that boiled garlic can cure the virus. Another says that loading up on vitamin C will do the trick. Yet another would have people essentially drink bleach. None of these quote-unquote cures will treat the virus. As for the dangerous idea of drinking bleach, chlorine dioxide kits are sold online under various names, Miracle Mineral Solution, Miracle Mineral Supplement, but they are most often referred to as MMS. These kits typically include a bottle of sodium chloride and a bottle of an activator, such as citric acid. When the two chemicals are mixed together, they make chlorine dioxide. But MMS hucksters sell the chemical solution as a cure-all for cancer, AIDS, autism, and now the novel coronavirus. One popular conspiracy theorist wrote on Twitter, quote, no known cure for coronavirus, they say. Well, it sure sounds like chlorine dioxide could wipe it out. He directed his 116,000 followers to a website called Kiwi's Corner, which posted a banner at the top of its site telling customers it was experiencing a high volume of orders. 
Chlorine dioxide is used as a disinfectant in municipal water treatment, but the Environmental Protection Agency has set a maximum allowed level of 0.8 milligrams per liter. The FDA has warned against using MMS since 2010 and reiterated in a statement to factcheck.org that, quote, the FDA recommends consumers do not ingest these products. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, Email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When Jennifer Staple Clark was a sophomore at Yale, an internship at the ophthalmology office turned out to be a life-transforming experience. She realized that many of the patients who had limited access to medical care were coming into the office with serious eye conditions that had gone past the point of reversing, leading to unnecessary blindness. What she launched from her dorm room was a local initiative to improve access to preventative eye care to the neediest population in her local community. Within two years, she took her organization Unite for Sight worldwide and has since turned it into one of the leading providers of global eye care in hundreds of communities around the world. Unite for Sight brings social entrepreneurs, public health experts, local eye surgeons, and volunteers together to bring eye care into some of the most underserved areas of the world. So they use each country's existing pool of ophthalmologists and eye surgeons to treat their local patients. They also train community health workers in each area they serve, thus removing traditional barriers to eye care experienced by many in extreme poverty. The community health workers provide education and transportation to get doctors to the patient's communities and patients to the hospital if surgery is indicated. Since its inception, Unite for Sight has served 1.4 million patients worldwide and restored eyesight to roughly 55,000 people, restoring not only their sight, but their dignity and ability to be productive members of their communities as well. Using global health delivery models and improving the quality of life by offering basic preventative eye care to those who had previously gone without, now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University. Streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.